Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you are our Father. And like a father, we can run to you and rest our petitions with you and know that they are heard and know that you will act on them with your sovereign wisdom and power. And so, Lord, we leave these prayers with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, our sermon today comes from the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, where we've been for a little while, and we will be carrying on with our study of this section of that chapter. Please can you turn there now if you've not already done so. I'll read from verse 1 so that we're reminded of the whole story. Do we begin again to commend ourselves or do we need as some others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle written in our hearts known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Well, since it's six weeks now since we were last in this text, I think a short refresher is definitely in order before we get into today's work. In verses 1 to 3, we learned how all believers are an epistle of Christ. And an epistle is just a more sophisticated way of describing a letter. And so our lives are therefore a letter written by God through the Holy Spirit to those of us around us who do not yet know Jesus. And that letter says this is what life with him looks like. Since our epistle is an actual thing, because after all it is our day-to-day -day real life, it has three dimensions. It has width, which means we must pass it on to others. It has depth, because it changes us personally from day to day. And lastly, it has height because it's completely dependent on our connection with God. And of course, those are hard things. They're challenges for each of us in those dimensions as we live out our daily lives. And one of those is what we're going to be talking about today. Then we dove a little bit deeper into verse 3, specifically to ask, who's your eyes are? We spoke about how the Corinthian church was struggling with this problem of Judaizers. And these were people who forcefully and quite wrongly sought to mix the works of the old covenant, the rituals and rules of the Jews, with the freedom and grace of the new. And one example of that is they insisted that Christians needed to be circumcised to be proper Christians. And unfortunately that problem didn't go away because Judaizers are still at work today in the very same way, but we are also confronted by many other different kinds of Isas 
dollarizers, funizers, and hobbyizers, to name a few. These are things that we give our passion and loyalty to when they ought to belong only to God. And so that brings us to verse 4, where we'll begin today. I'm going to kick this off with a question. Do you think that you are big enough, that you are good enough, sufficient enough to be an epistle of Christ? And that means that you at all times are his letter to the world, his letter to your friends and your colleagues, his letter to that fellow who doesn't use his indicator properly at the roundabout, his letter to the person on the till at the supermarket who packs your bread under the five kilogram bag of potatoes, his letter to the telemarketer who phones you in the middle of your evening meal. Well, I can tell you that for myself, I find it very hard to answer that question positively because too often my epistle stinks of sulfur rather than old spice. So I'm kind of an old guy, I like old spice. Fortunately for all of us, there is good news about this problem in today's text. But before we get specifically to that, we actually have to take a little step back to chapter 2. We have to remember this is a letter. It was written as a whole, as one set of flowing arguments. And what we see today as chapter and verse is just an arrangement that was added later by people, both to give reference points and to make it un easier to understand what is said. So if you were reading the letter, well, you wouldn't be jumping into the middle of it like we are, but you'd be reading the whole thing and, you know, you would have known what went before and see how it all fits together. So, what's important about chapter 2? Let's read it and see. Chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, and in case you don't want to pop back there, they'll be up on the screen. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? In these verses, we're again being reminded of our main task for the Lord, to be his representatives, in this case, symbolized as his fragrance in the world. And I think that's such a wonderful picture of how it ought to work. Think of the times when you've been somewhere doing something very ordinary, and then your nose picks up something delicious, a flower, a perfume, a gorgeous meal. Well, what is, that, what is that desirable thing? You want to follow your nose to find more of it, don't you? And that's how it ought to be for Christians too, says Paul. The character of our lives in the world every day and in every way ought to smell so delicious that it draws others to follow Christ. So it's just as well that this is so easy and we're all so extremely good at it then. Yes? No. Of course it isn't. We all know this. And I know I fail in so many ways and Paul did too. He asks, who is sufficient for these things? Who is equal to such a task, he asks. Because he knew that he too fell short of the mark. 
Well, since he's asked the question, perhaps he needs to provide an answer. And he does so very clearly in the verses we're studying today. And that's why we had to go back to chapter 2. So we can see the link between that question there and the answer here. So I'm going to reread our verses to you, but this time I'm going to use the NIV translation because it has some more modern language that I think makes, makes it a lot more understandable. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim everything for ourselves, but our com competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So, do you see the link back now to, to that question in chapter 2? Who is sufficient for these things? Well, we are. We are completely confident to be Christ's fragrance in the world because our confidence comes from God. That's fantastic, isn't it? It's so reassuring, but on reflection, it does raise a few questions. For example, who is we? Is we everyone? Why are we sufficient? And how much is sufficient? So let's try to answer those. To begin with, we does not mean everybody universally. We are a very particular group. We are only those who have accepted Jesus as their Savior, who know that he paid the price for our sins by dying on the cross and thereby gloriously restored the relationship between God and humans. And we respond to that by giving him our lives to use for his work, not our own desires. We. Next, why? Why are we sufficient? The answer is in chapter 3, our competence, our sufficiency comes solely and only from God. The Greek word that's used for not at the beginning of the phrase, not that we are competent in verse 5 means absolutely not. Not even a smidgen, a fraction of a percent is going to come from people. It goes on to say that the specific and particular reason we are sufficient comes only from God. He is our example and he is our strength. What is sufficient? What, is, what, what does the word sufficiency actually mean in real life? Well, the dictionary defines sufficient as meaning equal to the end proposed, adequate to wants, or enough. So if we plug that meaning into our verses today, we can understand that Paul is basically saying that although we haven't got enough of the right stuff on our own to do God's work, to be his fragrance or his epistle or however you want to put it, we do have exactly what is needed when we turn to him and only him. He will supply exactly the amount you need. And it might write, the word sufficient might raise a bit of a question for us because in modern language, sufficient often carries the idea of being, you know, a bit mean, a bit grudging, doling out something precious while trying to keep as much of it for yourself as you can. But that's the wrong way to read the word here. Remember, this is God, and God does everything perfectly. And so when he provides sufficiently for us, he provides perfectly. He gives us exactly what we need and when we need it. So we must understand that when we read that 
God's provision is sufficient, we can be sure that it also means that it is perfect. It's exactly right. So what do we need, and where and when do we need it? Well, I believe that uh, question has two parts in its answer, because we have to be both sufficient in nature and in ability. Well, the first part, nature, is not really the aim of this passage in Corinthians, because Paul is writing to those who are already believers. But I still want to be absolutely clear about it today. You see... I can never assume that those who hear my words, whether here or maybe online later, fully understand what it means to be a believer. And this is because being a Christian is now so thoroughly mixed up with the idea of, I believe in God and I do as much good stuff as I can, therefore I will go to heaven. Well, since this is so important, I'm not going to waste time trying to sugarcoat the truth for you. If that's what you believe... I'm very sorry, you're completely wrong. And you are in mortal peril. Good deeds are not enough to make up for the sins that you commit during your life. There's only one way to heaven and one sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins and that is by God's grace. And grace in this instance has nothing to do with bodily movement but everything to do with heavenly heart because God's heart is gracious he took action to save the creation he had made and he still loves. He sent his son Jesus to die for human sin on the cross. And it had to happen that way because there is just no amount of human effort or sacrifice that would ever have been able to atone for that sin. On the other hand, that single divine sacrifice was sufficient it paid the penalty required and it made everyone who calls on the name of Jesus for their own salvation sufficient in nature too. They, we, are now good enough for God. And remember that means that they are perfect, not just barely acceptable. And since that is so, they are now fit both to have God's direct contact in their daily lives and to look forward to eternal life with him on a recreated earth. And that's the other big fallacy, by the way, the harps and clouds and wings and stuff. It's just rubbish. And so that's what it means to be sufficient in nature. How about the second kind of sufficiency, sufficient in ability? Well, there's a few bumps in the road that we'll find along the way here as well. The first is this, when we hear that we are sufficient or perfect in nature because we have accepted Jesus as Savior, it can lead us into some wrong thinking. We might start to think, hey, you know, God does it all. I can't do anything at all to please him, so why bother? I'll just carry on as I did and focus on my stuff. God's stuff is now all sorted and good as gold. But that's not how it works. In the book of James, we read that faith without works is dead. That means when we come to faith in Jesus, at the same time we need to start working for him, not just in our own lives by trying to be more like him, but to be like him in the world around us. For example, in this book here, we've just heard about how our lives are supposed to be God's fragrance, to be God's epistle, to show what it's like to have the right standing with him. 
And that isn't going to happen when we stick to our own desires and goals. The truth is that fragrances are both made and sprayed. That lovely smell isn't going to get out of the bottle and into the air unless you put your finger on the pump and squeeze it out there. It takes work to spread around and this is where we can find that second speed hump. You know, being God's fragrance isn't always easy. Sometimes it's extraordinarily hard. Sometimes that's because our own characters stink when we run into frustrating circumstances. And sometimes it's because the task that God has shown us seems to be enormous. Here, Noah, build this ginormous ark. It'll only take 120 years and all your neighbors will laugh at you the whole time. I'm sure Noah said, Lord, give me strength. So why did Noah feel the fear and do it anyway? He did it because he was a righteous man who walked with God. The Lord was his sufficiency, his competence, and so he pressed on, endured the toil and hardship and his neighbor's laughter, and he completed the task that he had been given. And what was the fruit of his reliance on God? Well, it's true he might have been an object, object of ridicule, but do you think there was anyone in Noah's town or province or country by the end of that 120 years who didn't know what a righteous man looked like? The fragrance of God had spread far and wide because one man had completely relied on and obeyed him. And so I wonder... What could you or I do for God's glory if we really, truly took Paul's advice here to heart? We have so many excuses for being idle and afraid, but frankly, none of them hold, up, hold any water when we hold them up to what we read here. We ought to be that epistle. We ought to be that fragrance. When we walk through a supermarket, we are surrounded by food and drink. And the main reason it's been arranged that way and put in those packages is to make us anticipate the pleasure of eating or drinking that one and therefore buy that particular one rather than the one next to it. And tastes all very well. In fact, it's an amazing gift of God like colors and some smells. But that's not the point of food, is it? We don't just eat for the taste, do we? Although that would be very nice for the waste. I once read a story about a shop that sold puddings that magically disappeared from your body when you ate them. That would be a bonus. Now the real reason we eat is to live. Isn't that true? Our bodies need food for energy, for repair, for growth. And it's the same with the word of God. Reading it is all very well. Believing it? is great, but that's not enough. We must live it out as the Lord's fragrance amongst mankind. And what gives us the nourishment, the certainty, the confidence to do so? The power of Almighty God made available through Christ. Through Him, we are sufficient. Be it for quiet, unobtrusive prayer somewhere in a corner, or maybe building that ginormous ark 
as we consider what lies ahead of us in these troubled days, let's hold that gem firm in our hearts. Lean on him tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow because he is sufficient. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us this reminder right now because it's, <laughs> it's what we need to hear. We need to know that you are enough because things are so uncertain right now. We just don't know what to do. So thank you, Lord, that we can lean on you for our competency. But most of all, Lord, can we lean on you to be your fragrance at this time. Because we are not the only ones with needs. There are so many people around us who don't have you to turn to. And we pray that through your Holy Spirit working in our lives, we would show them what a good and great and glorious God you are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.